So I'm reading from two, uh, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on, on strength. Those who were hired... Sorry, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to be hunger, ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thanks, Dan. And uh, Johnny's now going to come and bring us Bible reading. As I say, these make excellent compost, but uh, if they're useful to you, then uh, let's make something of them. Thank you for your welcome. It's really lovely to be here among you. And it's great to see the, the fellowship that you have enjoyed over the years together that brings you back year by year. Something very wonderful about that, isn't there? Years with the same friends in the same place, uh, hungering together, learning together, encourage each, each other. You know, I always think it's great when an old friend staggers in a year later and they're still at it, they're still trusting the Lord, they're still soldiering on, they've got a few more bruises, a little bit less hair, everything's gone south since last year, but actually it's very encouraging to, to see them. And just what we do for each other in that is very beautiful, I think it's lovely. And again, you have the kind of friendship that is open to welcome those who are new. And thank you for that, it's really lovely to be welcomed among you. Well, if I took you to your favourite film and the favourite scene and your favourite moment in that scene, well, just would you, would you go there in your mind's eye for a moment? The setting, the lighting, central characters, the location of the scene and the overall story, the emotional atmosphere in the scene, the movement through it, the conversation or the action at the very heart of the scene. Can you go off there for a minute? Just think what that might be. Got a favourite scene in mind? Not everyone's a film goer. Have you got? A, can you get there? You got it. Now, can we ask you, what's the soundtrack? What's the soundtrack? What's the kind of, uh, if you like, background noise, the background tone, and what does the soundtrack do to enhance the scene 
and involve you in the scene and draw you into, if you like, the emotional moment that you're remembering and you're savouring because you've seen it so many times. It's always been with you. I want to say that Hannah's song at the start of 1 Samuel 2 is the backing track for all the action that follows in the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. That Hannah's song is paired with David's song at the other end of the story, at the end of 2 Samuel, and between them, the two songs interpret all the action that takes place between the song at the start and the song at the end. I'm going to put that out there for a minute, and I'll come back to it and try to persuade you of it. Here's where we're going to go uh, for this morning. If you weren't here yesterday, I began by suggesting that praying, the praying and weeping Hannah, is more, if you like, than an individual wrestling with a divided family and the issues of fertility. I want to suggest to you that Hannah pictures God's people in her era. That actually there's a deliberate move by the storyteller from the personal to the plural. Just as in Genesis, Abraham, early in Genesis, pictures the story of God's people subsequently as the story develops. Off he goes down to Egypt and and so on. So here, also in Samson, he definitely pictures Israel at the time. Here with Hannah, there's a picture. She captures in her pain something of the experience of God's people at the time. And we remembered yesterday that she has an honourable past, but she has a hopeless future unless God intervenes by grace to give her fertility, to give her a family. And that what was true for her was true for God's people then, and actually is true for God's people in any era. However noble our past, in terms of the ministry we're part of, the church we serve, we have no entitlement to a future. If we have a future, it's a gift of God's grace. We're more uncertain about our future than previous generations may have been, but actually it's no different. We only ever have a future by God's grace. That was yesterday. Today I want to persuade you that the singer, Hannah, can steady us and encourage us and help us as we wait for God to tip the scales and establish his justice. So we're going to be thinking about the singer, and then we'll think about the scales this morning. And then tomorrow we'll remind ourselves that actually God is perfectly capable of revealing himself and establishing his glory without any help from us at all. He can win away matches without the team playing alongside him. And that's very wonderfully liberating for us. As I said yesterday, we'll get to that tomorrow at the butcher and the barbecue. You'll know the story. So are you ready? Someone said to me yesterday, it's great just to slow down and savour the detail together. You've had sausages, now we're going to have scripture together, all right, and savour as we go along. So I will go deliberately slowly, I'll break in the middle after we've thought about the singer, and then we'll come to the scales. I hope we'll get through uh, before lunch. So, the singer. The singer is Hannah, and uh, we'll come to our singing teacher later, but here's Hannah, a new mother. Uh, It's a call of prayer in our version, but it seems to be, if you like, more than simply a prayer. It's certainly not a lullaby that she's singing to her new baby. It's a song of praise. She's thanking God for her son. Who knows if she wrote the song herself or how long after the birth. She may have picked out her favourite chorus. We're not sure. No one knows. The boffins can't decide. We'll have a couple of comments on the song itself and then we'll listen to the teacher who takes her song and makes it available for God's people forever. So I like very straightforward headings. She sings to God the ruler. And look at verse 2 with me. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no other rock 
like our God. Isn't that wonderful confidence in the truth about who God is and that there is no other, no one like the Lord, no one beside you, no other rock like our God. You remember what the followers of Jesus said, well, where else shall we go? And the God of Israel is stable, strong, permanent. There is no other one like him. And it's helpful that Hannah is the one to remind us of that because as she sings, there were plenty of other options in the world of her era just as there always have been and there are today. And we know that towards the end of his life, Moses warned God's people not to get involved with the rocks of the people around them. I think Dan Strange has written a book all about that, hasn't he? With its title that reminds us that their rock is not like uh, ours. And it's a fine book and a fine study. Uh, and Hannah, Hannah's song is reminding us, yes, there, there, there are other gods, but they're not like this god. No other gods can actually do anything. And we do need to go on saying that, don't we, in the world in which we live and serve. And we need to get up in the morning and remind ourselves that there is no other God. And there is no other God like the God who's made himself known through the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly, she sings, or let your mouth speak with such arrogance. Why not? For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. She's very clear it's a mistake to strut about the world, God's world, as if we owned the place. It's foolish to be proud and arrogant. It's unwise to stamp on other people and assume that nobody's ever going to do anything about it. And we're living in a culture, aren't we, where there is a kind of a, a, a fiercer, more shrill, more hostile, more arrogant rejection of the truth of, of God as he has revealed himself to us. And Hannah says, that's a mistake. Look in verse 3, why is it a mistake? Because the Lord is a God who knows. He knows the whole truth about every situation in ways we never do. He knows precisely what justice is going to involve. He knows the truth about us. You know, it's like if we're going off the rails privately, we may be able to conceal it from our friends or family or colleagues for a while, but God is a God who knows right from the start exactly what's really going on. And you see at the end of verse 3, that little phrase, by him deeds are weighed. You don't need to say that's a, a phrase from the commercial world. The underlying picture is scales of the kind that, scales of justice on the old bailey. Uh, weights on one side, flour or spices on the other. And the God who knows has the power to tip the scales in life and he's willing to use it. Isn't that lovely that he has knowledge that equips him to exercise power? And how, how, how rare it is to have those two things going together. Power without knowledge is terrifying, isn't it? Knowledge without power is unsatisfying. But God knows and has power to know when and how to tip the scales. And Hannah knows that. And then she's going to go on and show us how God is willing to use that power. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors, she says, are broken. And I love the thought of all those rusting military uh, hulks around the world. Tanks that are now useless, ships with no one to sail them, submarines that nobody needs anymore. Uh, verse 4, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. In other words, those who are in are now out. Those who are out are now in. Do you see verse 5? Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who are hungry hunger no more. And then we go, if you like, from outside the home to inside the home. Do you see? She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons 
pines away. <coughs> and we can think of a very unhappy family that we met in the previous chapter where that might have been working out. But if you like to save a detail, just look at the way the song moves, the way the rhythm works. In verse 4 and verse 5, there are matching pairs at the start of each of the verses. You see how in verse 4, look at it carefully, it goes from strong to weak. Warriors whose bows are now broken. So it goes from strong to weak, and then it goes weak to strong. Those who'd stumbled are now armed with strength. Do you see that? So strong to weak and weak to strong. And then the next verse does the same. It goes from strong to weak and weak to strong. And we're expecting that pattern to repeat itself. We're used to it now. Strong to weak and weak to strong. Strong to weak and weak to strong. But that's not what happens. We read weak to strong and strong to weak. Do you see how that works? That actually God is a specialist in surprises. His speciality is tipping the scales to favour the weak and bring down the strong. He loves taking a woman in a weak position like Hannah and he loves bringing down a domestic tyrant like Penina. Look at verse 6 and verse 7 in case the sausages you've had are making this tricky. Look in verse 6. There's a pattern in verse 6, a sequence in verse 6 and 7. Do you see how 6 starts with a negative? The Lord brings death and then a positive, and makes alive. Verse 6 has another negative. The Lord brings down to the grave, and then a positive raises up. So we're used to that. We've got the rhythm, and it goes from negative to positive, negative to positive, and we're expecting that, but that's not what happens. Then we have positive, positive, positive. Verse 8, he's the God who raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. He's the kind of ruler who loves raising up the poor from the rubbish dump. He loves taking little people who live in that sort of place and seating them with princes. We can remember a story of someone who was in prison, who was taken from prison and made prime minister. And God loves taking ordinary people and turning them into royalty. He's that kind of God. That's the kind of God we get out of bed in the morning to serve. Look at the end of verse 8. God laid the foundations of the earth. They're his design. He's always been in charge since the world began. Long since we ever came along to wherever we might be serving him now. He, 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 he was there before anything else ever was. And you see in verse 9, he'll still be in charge at the end. The wicked will be silenced in the darkness. The God who knows is the God who makes and reigns. And he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it's all of, all of it is his. Do you see how this song is a celebration in beautiful language and imagery and, and sort of movement through the song? A celebration of God's rule. It's God's rule that is the theme, the tune that runs through the song and holds it together. But what is it that makes God's rule worth celebrating? Not every rule is worth celebrating, as our the Washington Post delights in telling us. Uh, not every rule is worth rejoicing in. What is it that makes Hannah's song worth singing? And surely it's beautiful. It's the fact that God the ruler has come to her rescue, not just to hers, but to rescue his people. So look how her song is also a song to God the rescuer. I left out the beginning of the song and the ending of the song, verse 1, 
and verse 10. And you see that the, the picture of a horn is repeated in both verses. In verse 1, it's Hannah's horn. And in verse 10, it's the horn of God's anointed. And if the horn comes at the start and the horn comes at the end, verses 1 and verse 10, uh, at the beginning and the ending of the song, they're going to show us how to make sense of the lyrics that come between the beginning and the end. So look at verse 1. It's intensely personal. Not a powerful reminder to us in ministry that actually it's the quality of our own relationship with God out of which everything else flows. Our ministry needs to be personal and go on being personal if it's ever going to be faithful in public. So verse 1, my heart, she says, rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Here's her whole personality involved in thanking God for her son. The heart of uh, a real faith is an intensely personal relationship with God. You, you don't need me to tell you that, but it is a great focus for us in time away together to re- refresh our relationship with God as we refresh our relationships with each other. You see in verse 1, my horn, she says, is lifted high. She compares herself here to an animal, a stag or a bull. If two stags fight, sort of autumn watch is full of that spring watch, or the losing stag runs off with its tail between its legs and its held head, head held low, and the victorious stag carries its head high for a few moments, as if suddenly conscious of its own strength. So it's an it's effective metaphor for victory, isn't it? But you see, Hannah's victory is not her in, her, in her own strength. My horn is lifted high. Somebody else has lifted her horn for her. Her victory is given to her. She doesn't achieve it by herself. God has it changed her status. She sings because God has rescued her. But then if we travel through the song and come to verse 10, you can see that Hannah's song is not just about her son. God has not only come to rescue her, he's come to rescue his people. And the language is very, very strong there, the language of, being, of shattering the, the enemies of God in verse 10. It's very powerful to be broken into little pieces. I know from personal experience that a mirror tile that you stick on the bathroom wall that then falls off about 20 minutes later shatters into very many little pieces. Well, Hannah knows that God will judge the ends of the earth. She knows that God is sending his people a king. And in verse 10, she knows that he'll give strength to his king and he'll anoint the horn, the victory, the exalt, the victory of his anointed. When that day comes, he'll do something like that, shatter into pieces all God's enemies. And so she sings and goes about her daily business. Isn't she an encouragement to us? And now it's time to meet our singing teacher. You see, Hannah's the singer, but Hannah's not the singing teacher. There's no evidence that Hannah knew that her song would be written down for all of us to read all these years later. Our storyteller, the man who put together 1 and 2 Samuel, is our singing teacher. And Hannah's song is in his story, located here, deliberately, at this point of of the book. And if he was here, I think he'd say something like this, Hannah's song is for every believer. See, her, her song sticks out like a sore thumb in the immediate context. 
Yeah, it's obvious enough to say so, but the rest of the story is story, it's narrative. It's, uh, when we stop to think about it, it's, it's odd in the way the story starts and then it stops while Hannah sings and everybody kind of holds their breath for a few moments. The action is frozen and then the story goes on again. I was asking somebody the other day, what do you do for an 11-year-old girl's birthday party? And uh, he told me about the details of the party games they had in mind. But this particular way of telling the story, it's a bit like, you know, that children's party game, musical statues. It's a bit like musical statues in reverse. Because in the children's game, everybody freezes when the music stops, and when music starts again, they start to move again. That's how the game works. But here, the story's been cracking along, and then Hannah sings, everyone stops. When the story comes to an end, the, the music comes to an end, then the story starts going forwards again. Yeah, you know me to tell you, there are virtually no other songs until the end of Samuel's second volume. There's this at the start, there's David's at the end, there's one at the start of the second volume, uh, where David sings uh, after uh, Saul and Jonathan have died. But at the end of Samuel's second volume, there is a song that matches this one. And many of the themes from Hannah's song at the start are taken up at the end as a kind of deliberate echo. And together, the two songs interpret the action that takes place in between them. Hannah's song comes here, tells us what to look for as the action gets going. David's song at the end reminds us of what we should have seen for ourselves by then. Now, you may have seen a play, or a mus- which isn't a musical, that uses that same kind of technique. Yeah, yeah, they're going along fine, yeah, the plot is happening, it's developing, and then the action stops and somebody begins to sing. And it gradually emerges as the play develops that the songs are interpreting what is going on. They freeze the action in order to comment on it before the story moves forward again. Well, you see, our singing teacher who puts Hannah singing right at the start of the story wants us to know that David's story that's going to follow is not just a story of blood and guts and political intrigue and the rise of yet another ruthless military leader. There is blood, blood and there are guts, And there is a successful coup, and the old regime is butchered, although not by David, but Hannah's song makes it clear that God is in this. Her song promises that God, the ruler, is coming in rescue for his people. That the rescue plan starts with Hannah and her son, and soon God's king will come once the forerunner has made way for the one he'll anoint. There are great expectations set up for us as we're going to watch and wait for God, the ruler, to come to his people. Don't need to tell you that by the end of Second Kings, it looks like kings have been an expensive mistake as God's people go off into exile and God goes with them and stands by them and promises that sooner or later another ruler will come and Hannah's song is still playing as the backing track for all that follows. And a thousand years later, again, you don't need to tell you that great King David's greatest son was born and another mother sang. And her song, Mary's song, is based on this one. She sang again of the ruler coming to rescue, of God restoring his rule over his people through the work of her son. So Hannah's song has that kind of trajectory built into it, heading off as Jesus will ultimately crush and shatter to little pieces all those who oppose God. (coughs) So would you agree with me that that, uh, in the light of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus, Hannah's song is has the capacity to strengthen our confidence in God, to give us patience and persistence that we need 
in the face of the, the weakness of the churches in the West, the way in which in our part of the world God's people are divided, in some ways doctrinally and morally chaotic, and the historic denominations, although there are many opportunities, are full of moral failure and doctrinal compromise, and we find ourselves surrounded by increasingly powerful enemies as far as we can read their power. What does it look like for us to be faithful, to steer our little ships through the storms of this year, next year, the next 20 years or so? Well, surely listening freshly to Hannah as she sings is at least part of the answer. Because uh, her song, as you know, comes from an era when God's people are going down the plug hole, weak, divided, compromised, defeated by their enemies. But even when that was all true and there's a lot of stuff going on around her, she's still right to expect God to tip the scales when he's ready to do that. She's still right to think that what God has done for her, picturing in min- pictures in miniature, what God will do through her for his people. She's right to look forward to God bringing down his enemies. So here's what I want to suggest to you. We'll have a brief break for a moment, and then I'll try and go fast to do the last part of what I want to do together. As you hum Hannah's song, allow the lyrics to shape you, to go with you into a very exciting deanery synod meeting. (laughs) Or allow the lyrics to shape you as you go and see an evangelical brother who's been treating you like an enemy. If you allow that to happen... And allow God to give you confidence that he is in charge as Hannah sings and says that he is and that he will tip the scales. What difference will that make to you? (coughs) So what I'd like you to do is just take a minute to choose a phrase from Hannah's song that's especially helpful to you this morning and then tell whoever's sitting next to you in about a minute's time. And then I've got a quarter of an hour to do 20 minutes work, so we'll crack on after that. All right, okay. Okay, everybody. Sorry, I'd love to leave you to do that for longer. I love your model of uh, a session and then a seminar to talk about it. And when you get soaking with stories like this, actually what would be great for us to do, wouldn't it, would be to have someone open it out for half an hour and then have a full half an hour to talk about it together and to share wisdom and reactions and how it strikes us in different situations. But instead, we're going to go fast. All right. So off we go into the scales. Because I wonder if I may to suggest that the song sets up what we then see happening in the story. And as Hannah has sung to us about the God who knows, the God who tipped the scales, we're now going to see that in action. So I don't know about you, I have a barcode reader at home that reads my books. I can put the barcode in and ping, it tells me what the book is, reminds me who I lent it to and uh, why I haven't got it back yet. (laughs) But uh, something like a barcode has uh, crept into this section in 1 Samuel. It's a very unusual barcode because the black lines are much thicker than the white spaces in between them. It's a very unusual structure. It's absolutely unmistakable. When you've seen it, you'll never forget it. So off we go. 2 verse 11. There's a white space because we're thinking about the little boy who ministers before the Lord under Eli, the priest. Then a black line as we go to it, back to Eli, 2, 12 to 17, and hear about their greed and contempt for God. Then little white space in 2, 18 to 21, when we're back to thinking about the little boy again. And then a massive black line, 22 to 25 of chapter 2, with stories of sexual promiscuity among the clergy. Then white again, 2, 26 
Do you see that? Back to Samuel. Black again for the rest of chapter 2 with Eli and his sons. White again with Samuel as a central focus in chapter 3. These stories are woven together. It's mostly black, but God is doing something through this little boy that is there. Uh, and, and back and forwards the, the chapter goes. A glimmer of white, a lot of black, a dash of white, a load of black, a moment of white, a mass of black, and then finally white comes out in the end. And as we read this story, I want to invite you to hear a solo voice. It's a female voice. She has a lovely voice. This woman sings on her own, and her song is telling us what to expect as we watch the God of Israel in action. The words of Hannah's song interpret the action for us, and she makes sense of those alternating paragraphs. I'll show you the movement through the section. I can't do this properly, but I'll do it quickly, and I hope you'll get it. So Eli's ending. Uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 36. I'm not going to read it. I'd love to be reading it, but I'm going to take you through it. His ending begins, you see, with the wickedness of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were taking more than their share of the offerings. Verse 14, remember the normal system. A priest takes a lucky dip in the cauldron. He feeds the priest with whatever comes out on the end of the fork, but that was not enough for them. They take the best of the meat before it gets near the pot. And if necessary... They take it by force. There's a kind of ecclesiastical tyranny going on here. Recognise it? Verse 22, they were also sleeping with the women at the tent of meeting. So they were guilty of greed and immorality, unreliable in the areas of sex and money. They make no attempt to hide what they're doing or explain it, justify it, and damaging all kinds of people. But what matters to us is verse 17. They were sinning against God, and their sin was very great in God's sight. Verse 25, the same emphasis as their father warns them. It's not good and it's against God. You see, our storyteller wants us to know this stuff happens. Uh, It has always happened. It will go on happening. In every generation, there'll be people among the leaders of God's people who are unreliable in the areas of sex and money. You don't need me to tell you that. But isn't it encouraging and reassuring that it's here and it's frank and it's plain and we recognise it? This is not a sign that God has abandoned his people. All that ministers of the gospel should abandon the flock of God entrusted to them. So the individual members of God's ancient people must have wondered what to make of it. They say, oh, Hophni and Phinehas, carrying on like that. How could God put up with it? Why didn't Eli do anything about it? Well, the answer is because of his weakness. And there's considerable emphasis on his weakness in these verses. But again, before we condemn him too quickly, remember how hard it would have been for him to sack his own sons. He's an old man in his 90s, almost blind by now. And for all we know, these two sons may have been very fine in other ways. Hophni with a PhD in uh, systematics and Phineas, a brilliant speaker and his wife an actuary. Uh, And who would replace them if Eli got rid of them? And where would he find better men than these? And the cost of an industrial tribunal and the effect on his wife and his grandchildren. But he knew he had to do something. So he warns his sons, you see in verse 23, as strongly as possible, why do you do such things? And he rebukes them, and they ignore him. I would say that the leaders of the main line denominations are usually decent people trying their best. And there are men, and sometimes women, like Hophni and Phinehas, everywhere, people in official ministry roles, who are known to be unreliable in the areas of sexual morality or financial propriety. And so what should be done about it? Some of them have children. They all need some kind of pension. 30 years ago, the bishop would have summoned the Reverend Phineas and uh, told him to get rid of his live-in partner. And the Reverend Phineas would have gone home and ignored what had been said to him. (coughs) 
And these days it's much harder, isn't it, for the bishop to know what to do and how to do it legally and how to enforce what the, the, the biblical morality clearly involves. Now see how God treats Eli, verse 29. See, Eli's not a wicked man like his sons. He's never put his hands in the till or groped somebody else's wife. But he has to refused to take action against his sons. And God says to him, why did you honour your sons more than me? Isn't that a devastating question to put to a man in his 90s? God regards Eli's weakness as inexcusable and he's going to destroy the house of Eli because his, much as because of Eli's wickedness, a weakness as, as much as because of his son's wickedness. And God plants a bomb under the house of Eli. It's not going to explode for another 20 chapters. In 1 Samuel 22, King Saul will carry out God's judgment and kill all the men of the house of Eli in a day. And meanwhile, in verse 34... The man of God warns Eli that he and Hophni and Phinehas will all die on the same day as a kind of foretaste of the far greater destruction that God will one day bring on his family. I want to say it's a chilling prophecy. It's like a telephone warning identifying a major target in London, the palace, the tower, the turtle tunnel. And from now on that clock is ticking and God has the house of Eli in his sights. And Eli and his sons are heading for destruction because of their wickedness and his weakness. And my friends, the same emphasis goes into the New Testament, doesn't it? God has no room for a weak Christian leader. Strength runs through the list of characteristics to look for in Christian leaders in 1 Timothy. Those are show-stopping character flaws, aren't they, that are listed there. And don't we need to ask the Lord for strength, but, but the right kind of strength, and the right kind of strength exercised in the right way, in all the impossible complexities of situations where there seems to be no good outcome and only a least worst option. Pray for God's grace. Verse 30, do you see what God says? Those who honour me I will honour, and those who despise me will be disdained. And it's the kind of kitchen calendar text really, isn't it? But in its context, it's part of God's judgment against Eli. And the original language is very striking. God's saying, those who consider me weighty I will consider weighty. On the other hand, those who despise me will be treated lightly. It's the language of measures and mates. Oh, well, I'll try that again. It's the language of <laughs> weights and measures. Yeah? It's the language of scales. And can you hear that lady singing in the background? The one who sang the song about the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. He tips the scales. Here's the God of Hannah's song in action. He's doing what Hannah told us to expect from him. He's now tipping the scales against the house of Eli. And they're not just going to be, if you like, tipped off the scales. They're going to be shattered. Now, the great news, it seems to me, for us at a conference like this, it's very important to remember the good news in this particular chapter is that God is not like so many of the clergy. And isn't that encouraging for God's people? <laughs> that God is not wicked like Hophni and Phinehas, running the universe for what he can get out of it, greedily grabbing what doesn't belong to him. God is not weak, as Eli is, sitting in his office, wringing his hands, complaining about how hard his job is, issuing all kinds of warnings, but actually, in the end, doing nothing. God does issue warnings. He is patient, but in the end, he does do something. And what he does is drastic. And when they rule out every alternative, every way back uh, to him by their continuing rebellion against him, God smashes 
Eli's family and destroys men like Eli and his sons because he loves his people, because he will not put up with them forever out of love for his people. And what he did in this chapter, promised in this chapter, he still does today. And we don't have to be in Christian ministry or church life for long to see him doing it. So there you see, God tips the scales against Eli for the sake of his people. Eli and his sons are on their way out. Who is taking over? Well, chapter 3, and we're going to go very fast for the last few moments. We're moving from Eli's ending to Samuel's beginning. And now you see, we can see the point of the barcode. This is the record of God tipping the scales. He starts long before anybody notices. The temple at Shiloh, I was talking to somebody yesterday who has a four-year-old. The temple at Shiloh must have been a dreadful place for a little boy to grow up. Eli in charge, notionally, his sons running the place, all kinds of stuff going on with sex and money, and a four-year-old growing up there. He is the shoot, the tender root that God has in mind for his total transformation of the situation. I want to say to the folk from Oak Hill, isn't it helpful for us to see that Samuel quite clearly went to the wrong theological college? (laughs) It's great to know that God does what he's going to do wherever he wants to do it without consulting us. Hooray. And here's a man who was trained under Hophni and Phinehas and their various hangers-on. The alternating paragraphs reveal that God has chosen Samuel, he's protecting Samuel in a place where no one would ever think to look for him. Samuel survives even here and God is preparing him even at a place like that. And chapter 3 pictures this transition taking place. Verse 9, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Here's Eli teaching Samuel. Telling Samuel how to respond to God. In verse 10, that's what Samuel does. He speaks Eli's words. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Samuel there is dependent on Eli. But the next morning, the roles of the two men are reversed. Now Eli needs Samuel. Eli learns the word of God from Samuel because God has tipped the scales. You see, there's that background music again. God is raising Samuel up and bringing Eli down to the grave in front of our eyes as verse 6 of our song says that he will. And you see, verse 11 underlines the extraordinary severity of God's judgment against Eli and his family. Do you know that little phrase in verse 11? It's going to make the, everyone, the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. I don't know what makes your ears tingle, your children's music, twang too badly. Or, but what makes your ears tingle? You think, oh, it's like, a, it's like ears wincing, isn't it? If your ears could wince, that's what this is. And there's nothing that even the most expensive lawyers can do for Eli. There's no appeal against God's verdict. Both Samuel and Eli accept God's verdict. And verse 18 is very wonderful, isn't it? Isn't it a great picture? Something noble about Eli's character right to the end. Listen to him in verse 18. He's the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Isn't that what you want? It is what you want. Even though, and Eli says this, even though his next stop is a cemetery. So chapter 3, if you like, the focus is Samuel's new beginning rather than Eli's ending. We can see that through the whole movement of the story. If we look at the chapter as a whole, verse 1, the word of God was rare. Samuel hears from God even if the very first word that he hears from God is a devastating word of judgment against his mentor and against the whole of the, if you like, institution that he's been raised in. But by the end of the chapter, verse 29, all of Israel, from top to bottom, you know that, recognise that God is with this young 
person. And by the end of the chapter, God is revealing himself to Samuel, and Samuel, uh, through Samuel, God is ruling his people. Well, step back from the chapter for a moment and look at it as you might sort of look at our whole picture. If we've been zooming in on detail, step back to big picture. Uh, who is this Samuel? How did he get the job? Where does he come from? Why does God choose him of all people? Well, the chapter shows there's nothing conventional about him. He brings God's word to God's people from outside the system, outside the structures. When God is looking for a new leader, he's not restricted to the ranks of those who are ordained. He's not limited by the blinkers or frustrated by the corruption of the conventional religious authorities. He can work through them, but he's not dependent on them. And we've seen God through history, haven't we? Either renew someone from inside the structures or bring someone along from outside the structures. Either way, it's for God to decide how he's going to do that. And that's great news for God's people, the people we serve. That however bad things may seem on the surface, or whatever weaknesses there are on this leadership team, or that bench of people over there, or this synod of people over there, uh, or those in theological training, or the way the pathways are working or not working, God remains committed to his people. And he rules and leads and feeds his people by his word, raising up people to do that with or without the existing system. When I first arrived in Yorkshire, a couple of months after I'd arrived, uh, a nearby minister lost his job. He was in his early 60s. He'd been spending, hadn't been doing anything kind of seriously disastrous, but spending too much time sitting in a car in a car park with somebody who wasn't his wife. A good man, a gospel preacher. I learned that you can make a fool of yourself, destroy your reputation at any stage in your life. So we need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for each other, for protection from the sins of Hophni and Phineas. We need to pray for purity and freedom from the love of money. Pray that God will raise up for his people a new generation of Christian leaders, wherever he chooses to raise them. Ask God for Christian leaders who will remain strong even into their 90s. Pray that for ourselves. They will be strong for him within the limits of our capacity for as long as he gives us breath and won't make a fool of ourselves before we make it to the finishing line. Pray that for me personally. Pray it for students. Pray it for each person in this room and every family ministry that you represent. Look at verse 26 of chapter 2. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. And you don't need me to remind you that Luke quotes those same words near the start of his gospel, although he changes the name of the boy. And what God did for his people through Samuel, he's done for us through the Lord Jesus. Raised him in a grim little place that nobody would ever think to look. What? There? Throughout the corrupt religious leaders leading his people at the time. Authorized the Lord Jesus, speaking through him wherever he went. The God who's appointed the Lord Jesus to reign is the God from verse 10 of Hannah's song. He's the God who gives strength to his king, who exalts the horn of his anointed. (coughs) It's worth getting out of bed in the morning to serve him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary power and relevance of your word. We pray for ourselves and for Christian leaders unknown to us, loved by us, important to us. And we ask that you'll keep us from sexual immorality and from the love of money. 
We ask you to give us strength for each pace along the way, even to the finishing line. Keep us, we pray, from weakness or waywardness at any stage in life. Give us strength, but of the right kind. Give us grace to exercise strength in the right way. Give us wisdom when our knowledge is partial (coughs) and our diary is crazy. We thank you for your love for us and commitment to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus to reign over us. And we ask you to help us day by day to look to him, to lead and direct us. And we ask in his name. Amen. Thank you very much, Johnny, for opening God's word to us. And what I suggest we do.